Hi, this is Mia George. I'm the lead opinions editor for The Standard, and I'm joined here today with Daniel Tabir, and I'm the opinions editor for Print. So we have decided to transition from our regular politics update column into a podcast form. We are going to be debriefing and discussing some of the recent political events, and we hope you enjoy listening. Our first topic is Biden's Build Back Better plan. President Joe Biden has passed his Build Back Better plan in the House of Representatives and is awaiting for senators to return to Washington in order to debate the social spending and climate bill. In this $1.75 trillion reconciliation bill, Biden plans to spend hundreds of billions of dollars into new social programs and actions to mitigate the climate crisis. The act is very ambitious. It aims to dramatically reduce childcare costs, provide universal pre-kindergarten for children, lower the cost of prescription drugs for seniors, expand Medicare to cover hearing aids, extend work permits to millions of undocumented immigrants, and provide the largest ever investment in efforts to combat the climate crisis. The House version of the legislation also includes four weeks of paid family and medical leave. Most Democrats in the House voted in support of the bill, though the provision faces opposition from Senators Manchin and Sinema. Although, at first glance, the bill looks like it will aid the country's economic recovery, critics say that there is a better chance it will exacerbate inflation and slow economic growth. The current bill is full of spending unrelated to economic recovery. People under the age of 65 are those who start or expand businesses and invest in companies, and entrepreneurship and investment are what drive growth. Helping retirees live more comfortable lives may be worthwhile, but it is definitely not pro-growth. Furthermore, we can't fix the nation's underlying education and workforce issues by throwing money at them. The real issue which the bill should address is why government spending in these sectors is so unproductive. Nevertheless, the bill is a huge win for climate activists and the future of America's environmental impact. What do you think about this bill, Mia? As you did say, it's important to recognize that this kind of historically stands out. I mean, for so long, the climate change has been something that hasn't been at the forefront of our news and hasn't been addressed at this same scale from our political leaders. And so I think that this bill just shows that the U.S. is taking a huge stand against climate change, especially after COP26 and the conference, which is perhaps what, you know, helped that stand take place. And so I think 500, $555 billion is a huge amount in, aids and, in aid, and we should recognize this as, and I think, I hope that we see other nations take a greater stand, and especially Russia and China, which, you know, I unfortunately have a bit of pessimistic views, as I don't think that they're going to be contributing, in terms of political leaders, um, contributing as much. But I think that this is a sign of hope. And I do think, however, that your point on the economic consequences that could follow is super important. Perhaps many view this as like a bit of an extreme um, reaction or too much. And, you know, if you want to talk more about that, I think that would be interesting. But I think it's still a sign of hope and it should be. I hope that other political leaders follow, you know, Biden's Biden's acts and more is sent to help combat climate change because i do think it's a really big sign of hope yeah totally the bill is very useful for uh climate change and 
can help the U.S. crack down on the um, energy sectors, particularly in coal and oil. However, we have to consider the more prominent half of this bill, which is the social spending. And at a time like this, where the U.S. is just coming out of of a pandemic and economic recovery should be at the forefront of its priorities, this bill is just not in line with the country's needs and its best interests. Debate in the Senate started on November 29th, and Biden is hopeful he can pass the bill by Christmas, but debate over taxes, immigration, and paid leave can make the finish line farther off. Um, to now move on to the completely other side of the world, where I'm going to be debriefing Sudan and their very interesting uh, political situation right now. Um, just to debrief, in the past few months, the Sud Sudan's military has completely tightened its grip on the country's political climate. So for the past few years, uh, from June 2019 to now, the country has undergone one of the biggest political transitions uh, to democracy, or has attempted to. Um, I'll look more into that later on. But uh, this transition was heavily interrupted this year in October, actually, um, so quite recently, when the military took complete control over the government, actually ultimately dissolving it completely in a military coup, which was led by General Abdel Fattah el-Burhan. And so this coup, essentially, I'll go more into detail about it later, but it put the current prime minister at the time, Abdallah Hamdok, and his cabinet, and they were arrested. And the current government at the time, as I said, was dissolved. And so I just think of this as like, on top of what is already a kind of politically fragile state it also put like sudan's economy it faced a huge like deep crisis with high inflation shortages of food of food and fuel and medicine so i think that uh, while this is more related to the economy it's also important to consider um you know the consequences that this could have on civilian life in terms in and in addition to um excuse me the political instability so the country who has quite historically been isolated from the rest of the international community has now this coup has alarmed many international powers like the US which I'll go more into who actually like froze 700 million in aid when they found out about the coup so um yeah it did alarm the rest of the international community and but the country has faced a long standing problem of military and civilian leader like this power struggle between the military and the government as since August 2019, when the country overthrew their authoritarian long-standing president, Omar al-Bashir, which was finally overthrown um, because of street protest and unrest, which catalyzed the military's negotiation plan aimed at initially transitioning the country to a democratic government. So many military leaders in the transitional government have demanded reforms and the cabinet to be replaced. And so the prime minister at the time, Abdel Hamdok, blamed the slow, the unsuccessful transition, transitional process on Bashir loyalists, many of whom were quite interesting, interestingly part of the military, security, and other state institution services. So that just proves how counterintuitive that is in itself. The fact that these Bashir loyalists are part of these state institution services, which were in terms of military at the forefront of authority and governmental authority. So that's also important to consider. And so it remains apparent that, to me, it just remains apparent that the country's political fragility heavily lies in the country's 
first vast array of political parties. I think it was around 80 political parties that 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 is uh, forms the government and they're just their inability to build a uniform consensus, their inability to balance this power, this power struggle, this this grasp. And this inability has allowed for the military to step in and mount coups. And so that's what initi initi initiated the coup. And so in terms of what hap what is happening now, the military has announced a deal to reinstate Abdallah Hamdok as the prime minister just a month after dissolving the government of the coup. And the latest edition of The Economist says that, that the people that were actually detained during the coup are now being released too, which is completely ridiculous to think about. And that further, the elections that were planned to take place in 2000, 2000, 2022 will now take place a year later in 2023. So many viewed the agreement as contradictory, and that's my personal belief too, as Hancock used to be seen as a symbol of resistance to military rule. And so opponents argued that this agreement provides perhaps a legal cover for the coup and places Democrats as loyalists um, in positions of authority. So completely undermines that governmental transition into democracy that was initially the priority for the country's political stability. And so if I were to describe this agreement in one word, and Daniel, you can let me know later on what you think, but I would, I would call it just counterintuitive. I mean, the uprising that occurred in 2019 against Bashir was heavily focused on advocating for, for democracy. And so, so the fact that, you know, Hamdok signed the deal with the very person that put him in prison initially, it just sheds light on this completely what I would say contradictory process, and it just subverts the transition that was put in place. So the, the agreement, to go more into detail, was signed on Sunday, the 21st of November, and will lead a government of technocrats during a political transition that is expected to last, as I said, until 2023. And technocrats, if you didn't know, a technocrat kind of refers to someone that exercises governmental authority because of their knowledge or their technical expertise. So in this case, with the military being at the forefront of authority, they're going to use they are believed to use their strategic and military knowledge, which some people were very worried about because, you know, that could maybe into um, motives that are only strategically and militarily um, with, sorry, that have strategic and military intent. And that may, that may not be the best, that may not be at the best interest for the country. And so the foreign government, they've responded like the u.s have cautiously responded to this deal um while they did free 700 million in aid when the coup happened they are actually encouraging the deal but are aware that the junta which is a military group running the authority government uh does not they don't want them to exercise excessive force against protesters and for it to become kind of a form of of tyranny and corruption which i unfortunately i have a feeling that that's what it's going to become I feel like it's going to hinder the complete process to democracy. I mean, this whole process completely perplexes me because I just think, how can you sign a deal with the person that completely undermines your whole efforts into transitioning into democracy that put you in jail through a military coup? And I feel like in, in general, I don't, I have a strong feeling that military should not be at the same level of those in, in terms of governmental authority, uh, because I feel like that gets very complicated in terms of the best interest of civilians. But I mean, what do you think, Daniel? Yeah, I agree in the word betrayal. That is the best way to describe the situation as it is both a betrayal by Burhan as um, obviously that is a betrayal of the, the Sudanese people causing political 
unrest, and it's a betrayal of the country's transition to, to, to democracy, which was a great stride for the country, and he has completely undermined that. And as soon as he did uh, complete his coup, he has it's clear that he has no vision for the future of the country, and he has no clear path. So he came crawling back to Hamdok, and Hamdok continued to betray the country and is actually agreeing with the deal that was proposed to him from the same people that overthrew his government. So in my opinion, both sides of the situation are in the wrong, and it is a great betrayal of the Sudanese people, and this political unrest is not something that will be solved quickly. Yeah, I mean, I have quite pessimistic views right now. I'm just, in terms of looking forward to the future of, the political future of the country, uh, I just think that there needs to be a period for so long the country has not under like faced a period where there has been this political fixed consensus between all the parties and there hasn't been a a balance between these power struggles and so i think i mean there was but that was during the authoritarian rule of bashir so i'm just i'm hope i'm hopefully there will be a time where Sudan will experience political tranquility in the sense that there is a consensus between the military and the government. And this sign of betrayal is just, I think it's causing more harm to the civilians. And it's also going to, unfortunately, I feel like lead into corruption um, and more tyranny. So hopefully that's not what the country experiences. I mean, the international community doesn't seem so phased by this. There, there hasn't been so much response. Um, but I, that's what that's the way I see it from a uh, perspective of some of under of studying the coup and then studying what's going on now. It just seems so contradictory and this betrayal and as you said, this crawling back of Hammock and just kind of shed light on what someone how political figures what they would do to get hold of that power and without you know considering what's in the best interest of the country. So yeah, I think that's a really good and valid point. That is, are the two events that we are, have been studying and that we debriefed in our podcast today. Next week, we'll be uh, looking at the Belarus migrant crisis um, with Poland, and we'll be looking at that with great detail. So uh, look out for that. We hope you enjoyed and have a great week.